Welcome to Trust the Journey. I'm Melanie Curtis. Our mission is to live, laugh, love, and learn together with you. We're here to create conscious connections, to grow and contribute through our practice of openness, honesty, vulnerability, humility, and trust. Trusting the entire journey. Across the internet, our handle is trustthejourney.today. So if you want to support us, a cost-free way of doing that is to subscribe. You can subscribe on YouTube, you can subscribe on Spotify and follow us on Instagram. You can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of those ways really help us get more reach to reach more people and help more people. That's the hope. You can also share the show with someone directly if something resonates or if you're like, oh, I think that's going to help my friend, send send it to them, send them a text, drop them an email, whatever. And if you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do it through Patreon. So any amount will get you into the Trust the Journey family. And that's the private Facebook group where we expand the conversation with us all together. So you're... Any amount will get you in there, a dollar a month, $2 a month, $10 a month, whatever. We welcome all donations and we welcome you to to join us there and be supported. We want to give a huge thank you to our editor, Kimberly Joy Voice. She's the bomb for podcast editing services. Get her at KimberlyJoyVoice.com. We are also open and looking for trusted partners to align and brand with now. So if you own a company or know a brand that you think would be a fit for us, let us know. Reach out, trustthejourney.today. DM us on Instagram. That's a great way to get in touch with us. If you would like to connect with Jay or me individually, you can go to jasonmaledski.com and melaniecurtis.com. Cool. So today we have the great pleasure of getting to talk with Ash Gallagher. Yes. Ash is a narrative embodiment coach and erotic poet, a veteran war correspondent turned activist. She is a passionate storyteller and her, and her story has been a journey of healing from domestic violence by enlisting her somatic sensuality and spiritual connections. Her work navigates through a trauma-informed lens, creating space for people to unravel themselves, develop awareness, and transform their pain to pleasure through story, movement, and erotic awareness. Ash is a published author three times over. Her works are titled Reckoning in the Rubble, Of Stardust and Ashes We Are Made, and Raw, Naked, and Laid Bare. Ash works one-on-one with people as a coach, as well as a leader of workshops, both in person and online, for groups and businesses. Ash, welcome, my friend. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's quite the experience to be like launched into a space where you have to listen to your own bio and be like, oh my God, what do I do with that? (laughs) Sometimes it's actually just, what do I do again? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I mean, is there anything that for you, I have definitely some ideas about where I want to start our conversation. But I want to give you the opportunity to offer what's there for you right now as we start, if there is anything. I mean, no, I, I, I trust our, I mean, I trust our conversation, right? And uh, I mean, you and I have known each other a while. And so for me, it just, it's, I know it's got to be a fluid space. Um, 
I don't know what you got. (laughs) It is a fluid space and I'm not going to mess around because I love your work and what you do and what you put forth in the world. So I was feeling I want to dive right in like I want to dive in head first heart first. And I want to open the conversation talking about eroticism and erotic awareness. Yeah, because it's such a powerful word. And so there's a couple of things and feel free to take these questions wherever you want to take them. But first, what does that word mean to you? And second, what draws you to the study and advocating for eroticism in ourselves and in societies? Well, the, first of all, the word eros has come to mean something that just means romantic love. And it's usually been assigned to someone that you're partnered with, right? So married couples or long-term partners. But as I've sort of grown and gotten into not just the word itself, but into how it's being used in a sociological fashion, especially through the work of like Esther Perel and, you know, others who are in Terry Real and others who are in that line of work. It's really a, a word that comes from this, this origin that means aliveness, like life force, like, you know, root of life, right? And so to me, while, while that can include sexual love, it also can include what makes us tick, what makes us come alive, what makes us pull apart, yes. what gets us passionate. And so to me, that is about how we drive our entire being. Um, mm-hmm. We are relationships and we are stories. And that, that piece that keeps us moving forward is eros, is our eroticism, is the erotic. It's, 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 the, life, it's the life force. Um, and I think what drives me in this space is, well, first of all, my, just my own journey. I mean, I, I could yeah. do nothing about the study of it if my own body, mind, and soul didn't need it. Um, yeah. And, you know, moving through healing spaces over the past, I don't know, 20 years of my life in various stages and layers, for me, enlisting my body and enlisting what makes it come alive and enlisting what keeps me alive <laughs> is all a factor of that. Plus, I think as a writer and as a storyteller, I'm obsessed with how does the story connect to me? What is the story I'm telling? What is the story I know? Mm. What is the story I believe? And when you go back into some of the, the ancient stories, like Eros was this, this god that, you know, sort of exemplified mischief and exemplified mm-hmm. uh, this idea of, um, it, you know, uh, trouble and nuance and, you know, romance and beauty and wonder. And there were all these other gods and goddesses around him that were a participants in that story as well. And so I think that, that just even understanding that the basics of some of that reminds me that we as human beings are the exact same way. We're mischievous. We're in pain. We grieve. We love. Yes. We create. And all of those things are part of our aliveness. I've actually gotten to this point where I've said pain is actually part of the erotic story. If, um, p- if we didn't have pain, we wouldn't know pleasure. Mm. Um, and ultimately, pain is 
our our body, mind, and soul saying to us, I don't want to die. I'm out of alignment. Please make an adjustment. Mm-hmm. And that is actually our yeah. body's messaging system that reminds us that we're alive. So to say that the eroticism does not or should not include pain because we've isolated it into this one definition, to me, it uh, does a disservice to our full experience as human beings, to our oh, full experience as, as a relational being. Um, Beautiful. You know, I, I was writing the other night, I kind of shared this with you, but I was writing the other night about the fact that, um, that our bodies are, are, are a collection of molecules and cellular structures. And our, mm-hmm. bodies, are, uh, our bodies are a collective. And when we understand that our bodies are a collective, this, this collection of energy, this relationship of energy that actually makes us come alive, that gives us our life force, we're much more than able to attune to our pain and pleasure, to transforming that pain to pleasure, to make adjustments from pain to pleasure. But we have to understand yeah. that it's a collection of molecules and nerve endings and cellular structures and and bones and and all of these things that are together. And when we understand that, when we understand that, that we feel the weight of it, then we can actually shift the story. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to ask you more and I will, about storytelling and your call to that and your work with that. But before we go there, I want to hear more of your story because you mentioned okay. it, you yeah. touched on it. And, uh, and you're like, the only reason I'm doing this or I'm called to eroticism, aliveness, this work is because of my own experiences, my own story. So give us more insight into sure. that. You know what I mean? Build on, obviously, your bio is a bio, but we want to know more about what actually has been your path. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up in the Midwest. Um, I was born in Ohio. And then when I was about 11, we moved to Colorado. And, <laughs> you know, I have a lot of really <laughs> unique childhood memories in my primary years that included a village, right? I had my grandparents around, which I know not everybody did. I had, I had both sets of grandparents. Um, my parents were fairly young. Um, and I had aunts and uncles who were young enough to be like older brothers and sisters. And then I had ones that were probably, you know, the, much older than that. Um, both of my folks came from big Catholic families. Um, you know, one was the 11th of 12, the other was the fourth of eight. So there was a lot of that, uh, you know, a lot of kids running around, all of that kind of thing, a lot of village. Um, but at home, things were much different. It was a much different story. It was difficult. Um, you know, my folks just weren't exactly, you know, good stewards of mm-hmm. themselves um, mm-hmm. or each other or their children. Yeah, And so that translated into a very difficult story uh, growing up. And when we moved to Colorado, we were much more isolated. We didn't have a buffer system. Um, I couldn't just call my grandmother and go to the house. I couldn't just, you know, go play outside. I couldn't, you know, with the neighborhood kids. It was a much different space. And so it exasperated the struggles that were already there. And, you know, I grew up in a very domestically violent space. Uh, it, you know, the psychological and the verbal started before the physical. And, um, 
how that unfolded was deeply painful as a teenager, uh, was deeply painful as a person who was trying to just figure myself out, let alone what was going on in my home. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I was a church kid at the time, so I sort of clung to the idea of going to church because it was an out for me. Um, I I enjoyed school, not because I thought school was the greatest place, but because it was an out. It was a way for me to be out of the house every day. Um, And, you know, I was an average student. I was a B student. You know, I did my best, um, like a lot of kids do. But there was also a lot of pressure that came with that, too. And I'm really grateful for um, the couple of teachers that I had, a youth pastor that I had. Um, I think sometimes they saved my life. just with small compliments and small uplifting moments Mm. because none of them knew the extent of what was happening. Um, I I ran away at the age of 14 and I ran away uh, to church because that was the life I knew. So what else was I going to do? And unfortunately Mm -hmm. the American Christian system, and you know, I don't know how many people listening have, that background, but they may relate. The American Christian system, unfortunately, perpetuates a lot of um, suppression. And Mm -hmm. so that what that does then is it often creates isolated family units that where violence is happening, um, there's no way to get help. There's no Mm -hmm. true acceptance in that in the ultra conservative system uh, to go outside the church for assistance. So I go to the church that day to go to this choir practice and, um, the pastor who's in charge, who sort of received me that day, he takes me right back into the environment that I was trying to get away from. And I, Uh. I don't have any anger toward that man. He was, he was being brought up in a culture that had a very specific set of rules Um, I was also in a church, unfortunately, where LGBTQ was shamed uh, by a pastor who was a bisexual man and who was later caught um, Mm -hmm. doing drugs with a male masseuse uh, who Mm -hmm. became a lover. And so all of these things as a teenager, I don't see the bigger picture. I see my narrow tunnel vision space and I'm hurting and Mm -hmm. I have no idea how to seal that. So for me, when I left at about 18, um, really created opportunity for me to explore myself. Um, and you know, I wouldn't leave the church per se for another four years, three or four years or so. Um, but Uh it was within that time that I was very rapidly um, having to unfold and unravel myself. I, I got married um, mm-hmm. to a military guy <laughs> okay. who, I mean, there's a lot of stereotype in this, I think for just the, the <laughs> environment that I grew up in. Um, but well, if we I, talk about story and we talk right. about being a, be, well, and being a young person, right. you don't, of course you are only exposed to certain things, certain right. ideas. And w- when I say you're exposed to certain ideas, that means as a young mind, it's making up a story about what is possible in your life, what you quote should or shouldn't do, what right. is allowed or not allowed, what is what is even available to you. Of course, as a young person, it would be very difficult to know that th- that's what's beyond those boundaries when you've never seen beyond those boundaries. 
And it's, it's, it's really interesting that you say that because it, there, and, and I will kind of get to the story because I think it's, it'll be an important, yeah, to the shift. But, you know, I was, I was in this a very abusive relationship with this guy that would turn into our marriage, that would turn into a lot of um, horrifying sexual abuse and everything else. But in the middle of all of that mess, in the middle of all of that going on before, you know, the marriage and divorce and just the up and down of all of that space, um, the, the, the gentleman, the, the couple that were kind of my youth pastors, when I kind of reached college age, we were becoming slightly more friends. They were becoming mentors. You know, the dynamic in our connection was changing. And he mm-hmm. had written a book at the time um, that I don't even know if it was available anymore, but he had written a book at the time that was kind of his version of the hero's journey. It was called okay. uh, Life Unlimited. And the whole thing was really just kind of his sort of breaking down, I think, the hero's journey, um, you know, talking about us being the hero in our own story and talking about everything from needing sages to adversaries and all of that kind of thing. And he was a movie mm-hmm. buff and so was I. So he compared it to a lot of, you know, film. Um, and I remember, you know, sitting at his house one night and with him and his, his wife and we, you know, we were just, it was near Christmas. We were having hot cocoa and coffee at night. We were sitting by the Christmas tree, um, you know, just having, just dissecting these ideas. And I'm 19 years old and it's 11 o'clock at night. He's like, oh, you want some more coffee? I'm like, great. And um, his wife went to go check in on their little kids who are home now, grown up artists now. But, um, you know, we go into the kitchen and he's, he's making coffee and he, he says to me, okay, what, what, is your, what is your extreme dream? What was extreme passionate thing you really want to do? And I, I thought about it for a minute. And I didn't know if it was a dream. Sometimes I think when I think of extreme dream, I think of happy, but it was just something big that I wanted to yeah, accomplish. Something alive in you. Alive. Something there for you. Exactly. Yeah. And I said, mm-hmm. well, I want to be a war correspondent. Oof. And he Amazing pauses that that for a minute. Came out. <laughs> yes. And I hadn't told anybody that. I hadn't said that to anyone. Um, and he kind of pauses for probably what was just a few seconds, but it felt like hours. It's like this extended time of, of, of lit, you know, lingering with this information. <laughs> and right, right. he smiles. Settling and, into. Okay. <laughs> exactly. And he, he starts to pour my coffee and, and he has this smirk on his face that I always liken to like Harrison Ford. And I think that's because he was kind of obsessed with Harrison Ford. He loved Indiana Jones and Star Wars and all those movies. And so he kind of had this smirk on his face and he says, okay, let's figure out how to get you there. Oh, and it was the first time in my this. life, Melanie, that somebody told me yes. Oh, beautiful. That I could I'm do tingling all over. anything I wanted to do. Oh my God. Granted, I would go through the process of the pain and the divorce and the marriage, all of those kinds of things. But mm-hmm. it was like that moment stuck with me so hard that it obviously gave me, in my opinion, maybe maybe the courage, maybe it was the courage to get out of that marriage when it was time. Maybe it was the courage to actually go out on my own as terrified as I was. The courage that when my parents who were not in a good place wanted me to like come back home and control my story, Mm -hmm. you know, I said, no, it was the courage to just be out and finally go where I wanted to go. And that's incredible. It stuck with me because I, I think it, it made a lot of who I am. Just that it's yes. not surprising. Yes. Yeah, it's not surprising 
that you now are in service to people in a similar way that like, I mean, it's not the same thing. It's not like you're sitting there telling clients, yes, but you are facilitating and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm, cause I'm this idea of narrative embodiment mm, and that okay. coaching that you do and the storytelling. So I, and extracting insight from experience, you know, and using that as a healing creative force of, of crafting our narrative or crafting our story and recognizing that that is a skill and that is something we can actually choose into that we don't have to live with the ideas and limits and no's or, or whatever that has been our worldview, that has been our life experience up to that point. So it, that's a beautiful, beautiful story. I want to hear more about the war correspondent stuff, obviously, but... <laughs> No, I, I get about, it about narrative embodiment because I feel yeah. like it touches, it connects to this really, really beautifully. It really does. I mean, look, I I grew up uh, not just being, you know, a, a church kid, but I, I grew up watching a lot of movies, and I really think this contributes to it in a big way. And to me, this is about the animation, the animation of story, right? The animation of how it plays out, the animation of how it, um, how it creates impact. And so for me, the idea of narrative is just being able to hone in the depths of storytelling and storytelling mastery and reframing um, how we sort of look at the world from various angles. But the embodiment part of it is not really separate because in order to be animated, you have to insert your body into the whole thing. How many actors do we know do as many of their own stunts Mm. as they can? before they have yeah. to bring in a stunt double who may just be more skilled. Right. The idea is this, that you put your full body into the experience. And mm. so that's like part one of it for me. Part two of it is that your body in herself, himself, their self, your body, is the story, tells the story, is communicating to you, is speaking to you and is saying, hello, I need to tell you what I love what feels painful, what feels pleasure, what turns me fuck on. Your body's yes. telling you a story. You know, in my case, I'm going to use she because I, you know, um, so, you mm-hmm. know, he, they, however you identify, she tells me what she needs. She tells me what feels so good. She tells me how to experience my life through my muscular structure, through my tissues, through my bones, through the mm-hmm. ways that I become conscious of her communication. And when we, we, mm-hmm. we create consciousness with our body, we become a living, breathing meditation. We become a living, breathing prayer. We become a living, breathing experience. We become the story. I am the, like, I am the story. I'm not telling the story. I am the story. Because I understand that my body has more communication systems than just my five senses. And I've got, as I've gotten into the (laughs) somatic side of things, which by the way, soma just means body, but as I've gotten to the somatic side of things, it's really taught me, you know, how your nervous system is like this other messaging system, right? The old fashioned messaging system that is coming back up to the brain. 
how your heart actually has the cellular structure that almost functions itself. Um, and so we, we, are, we are fascinating creatures and wonderfully designed, evolved, divine dirt clods, as one of my teachers says. <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are truly something of, of wonder. Um, and we're made up as the same stuff as the earth. And yeah. to me, that is a story that is worth experiencing. And so narrative embodiment, yeah, that's a long-winded answer. But essentially, oh, my goal, good. my aim beautiful. is get you out of your head, out of your over-logical, overthinking mind, get you into your body through storytelling, through understanding that story so that you can be a living, breathing experience of the erotic of aliveness. That's my aim. That's my goal. Well, so now I honestly, this is so, oh, so curious. Your story is so fascinating to me, Ash, on so many levels. I mean, not only you as a human and a beautiful, beautiful, radiant friend of mine, but meaning just your, your vast, interesting experience, the war course, being a war correspondent is almost is like equally as weird as being a professional skydiver. You know what I mean? It's like, who does that? Very few people. You know what I mean? So there's something very interesting about that. And obviously, you've done it at a high level. And you so and I'm from the perspective of narrative embodiment and feeling our bodies and listening to the stories our bodies are telling us. I'm I'm going in my brain to, holy fuck, what is that like to be in a war zone? Like, I, and I'm thinking trauma-informed coaching, like a million different things are coming into my brain hearing you talk about this and then wondering about that experience as a war correspondent and being like, how was that healing because you're following your dream? And was it traumatic too? And, you know, like the complexity. I mean, the answer is yes. Yeah, I'm imagining, right, I'm imagining. But but please tell us more about that experience and how it connects to all these things that we're talking about. Well, you know, I think at the age of 19, um, the idea of going into media and journalism had a lot more to do with what I was good at. I was a good writer uh, for 19. Now, granted, a lot of teenage angst back then. I was a good writer. And hashtag teenage angst. You're welcome, <laughs> <Right>. world. <laughs> I love it. But Bring it on, CNN. <laughs> we had, which I ended up working for them, ironically. But I think the right. interesting thing is, is that, you know, we, I also kind of grew up in a political family. Um, and not, they, they were, they were, they were Midwesterners who bickered about politics. Let's put it that way. They were not politicians. They were Midwesterners who like to sit around and talk their politics. Um, and, and so there was a piece of it that made sense for me, but there was also a piece of it that was just, could I take the cinematic experience that I love so much and apply it to real story, apply it to true story? And it appealed to me. And War Correspondent was kind of, is, is considered some, one of the highest titles, right? It's, it, you go out and do that, you're either you are a good reporter, you become a good reporter, because there's a lot of people who go out there, everybody goes out there very green, just like any profession. Yeah. Sure like skydiving, right? Your few, first mm-hmm. few dives, or you're, 
you've got to be careful. You got to be extra careful about your mistakes and your green, right? Yeah. Being a war correspondent, same yeah. thing. Um, before I left the states, I, I had I had tried to work my way up through CNN. Actually, I worked at newspapers for a couple of years, and then um, I ended up getting a job at CNN. And um, I ended up being there for about eight years or so. And a lot of people say that we grew up there, and the reason that is is because it's a place where you can you could go to almost any department and you could say, I want to learn how to do that. I want to learn it. And mm. they'll, somebody will teach you. Somebody will teach you. Very cool. Um, it's, there's a family, a little bit of a dysfunctional family, but there's a family aspect to CNN that, that really kind of brings people together and um, creates space for you to sort of learn and grow. Um, and, but, you know, like any other industry or company, sometimes getting to sort of the, the, the top tier levels can be very difficult. And I am an activist at heart. Um, I think there's a part of me that always sort of grew up idolizing, you know, the Jane Fonda's Gloria Steinem, Angela yeah. Davis, incredible women, um, Audrey Lorde, you know, these, these women who are incredibly vocal. And so, you know, I, there were times that, you know, I, I feel like I probably challenged, um, my bosses who, you know, uh, didn't like that I wasn't uh, seen and not heard. Um, yeah. A lot of my supervisors, a lot of my coworkers, I always had really good relationships with them and support with them. And at some point, I had some people who were sort of mentoring and advising me and, you know, sages in the workplace and just said, why don't you just go out? Just do it. You want to do this? Go. I was like, all right. Mm. So again, another, another situation where I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go do a thing. And I went and did it. And it was terrifying to sit there and say that there's no fear would be ridiculous. I always like it when Liz Gilbert right. says that she doesn't believe in fearless people. She thinks fearless people are sociopaths. Yeah. Because it's, you can't not be afraid. It doesn't exist. Yeah. It doesn't when people exist. are like, oh my God, Melanie Curtis, she's fearless. I'm like, fuck no, you don't know no. me at terrified all. all. If the you time. think that's, it's like, damn, the reason I had to do the work is because I'm scared so much. Like, right. Right. Yeah. Um, but I just, I so wanted, and I was already on the Arab beat. And I do think that 9-11, um, which I was 18 when 9-11 happened. So, you know, it sort of changes, changes the, the scope of, of how you see and are interested in the world. And so the Middle East, there was no other place for me to go. Um, mm. And the reporters, the CNN reporters that were there, they, they were all really good to me. Uh, they were like, look, you come stay at our houses. We'll give you contacts if you need a little bit of office space for the first week. You know, it was just like little things to be like, we'll take you out to dinner. We'll share some wine. Yeah. It was just ways to just bring me in and say, we really believe in what you want to do because you're wanting to do what we're wanting to do. And there's enough room for all of us to share. So come on, let's get you in. And it, it was, it was slow. I started out by, you know, I, I was, I, I went from, Beirut to Jerusalem in a really, for, for the first few years. And uh -huh. I did a lot of refugee stories and, you know, um, and then I ended up going to the Lebanese Syrian border where I saw, uh, some frontline conflict. And then I went into Gaza and Gaza, I think was the real heavy, sort of the heavy hitter in terms of, um, really beginning to see a back and forth. Um, because in Gaza, you are absolutely in an open prison. And the blockade that happens by the Israeli government in particular is uh, harmful to the people that are in Gaza. And unfortunately, you have this other group, um, who's a Palestinian group, 
Hamas that is sort of the resistance group. And there's a lot of debate on, you know, the, the United States considers Hezbollah and Hamas, they join by calling them terrorists. I struggle with this, this idea because having after working at Al Jazeera for a little bit, doing a couple contracts at Doha and spending time with them, you know, we used to debate the idea that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Mm-hmm. And this is a mm-hmm. very hard truth to swallow. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very I, I, hard I, truth. It's, I think it's beautiful that you're bringing that up because you're talking about things that I imagine a lot of listeners don't know anything about. I don't, right. I know barely anything and it's only sure. because I know you, you know, and I was definitely the person who watched the news that my parents watched and just right. took it in and didn't even remotely process it in a cognitive, thoughtful, you know, way to right. make my own judgment. I just was being spoon fed what the media was, was telling me. And I didn't know for a long, long time oh, oh, I need to be considering what I'm hearing. It sounds so stupid. No, it it, it doesn't sound stupid to me. It it doesn't sound stupid. Yeah. Because people... It's a thing that I think a lot of people experience. No, you're right. Everyone everyone experiences this. I think this is what happens. I think people sort of get... People want to feel a sense of safety. And people's safety comes from their belief systems and the stories they tell themselves. And whether those stories are serving them or not, does it really matter? It's about, does the information, right. does the story make me feel safe? And so this happens on, you know, a political scale mentally, but it also happens physically. I do think that the one thing that the Warzans gave me, having gone to Iraq, because then I would later go on to Iraq, I would actually be detained in Turkey. So I've experienced a whole range of sort of frontline and, and, you know, sort of bare, what I like to call bare human consciousness. When you're mm-hmm. in the Middle East and you see these things happen, in my personal opinion, what is happening there is just more honest than what we see in the West. Mm-hmm. The same thing is happening mm-hmm. in the West. We're just a lot more dishonest about it. Because mm-hmm. we want to say that because we don't have wars everywhere, we're more civilized. Mm-hmm. I call bullshit. I think that I, I'm not, a, I don't promote war. I'm not for war. I don't think we should go to war. I'm not saying, yeah, war is great. Like I, none of that is so anything that I believe <laughs> right, in. Right, right, right. What I understand, what I take from it is that when we are, when we get to a point of our desperation is just too much, we will do anything to survive. And so in the West, we claim that, you know, because we don't have that, because we don't show it as much, because we're not out without all those. I think some of that's changing considering January 6th. But mm-hmm. I think that when people get to a point of absolute desperation, they will protect their family, protect their belongings, protect their own version of safety, their own story of safety, right. and they will fight against somebody yep. else. It doesn't mm-hmm. justify torturing another person. It doesn't justify harming them. It doesn't justify rape, which is one of the most significant weapons of war there is and has always been. It doesn't justify any of that stuff. All it does is explain it. And hopefully, for those of us who come into an understanding of that, we can start to make changes in the world that will create healing, justice, um, create spaces for people to move forward 
feel safe in the uncertainty rather than the desperation of their certainty. Beautiful. And I think that's, I think that's what war gave me. It gave me a baseline understanding of how our human condition works. Wow. That is powerful. If you want to talk narrative embodiment, it's really just my whole body's in it. Like the, to me, there's, there's a practical, this is just a practical somatic application. I had to wear yeah. 12 kilos a gear on my, mm-hmm. on my body um, on a regular basis when I went out to the front line. I was exhausted. I was tired. Uh, I managed Crohn's disease. So I had to constantly be conscious of how often I went out because I would have to come home and have a day of rest, especially if my stomach didn't take to some of the food that I ate. Um, being mm-hmm. a vegetarian wasn't hard because there's plenty of like non-meat options in, in Middle Eastern food, but it was also just sometimes you're eating a lot of junk, you're stressed, you're, you know, kind of in those spaces. So it was, it was a constant enlistment of listening of, of my, how do I say this better? I had to listen to myself. Yeah. I had yeah. to just listen to it myself. It was uh you were so immersed that and in such an extreme situation that if you didn't listen to yourself, you could have literally been in danger. It's it's Correct. interesting. Again, the skydiving metaphor, we don't necessarily go there all that often even though Jay and I are obviously professionals in that lane, but like when you feel something and your intuition speaks in a skydiving scenario, it, it you learn quickly to listen to that. You know mm, what I mean? You mm, learn quickly mm. to not let social pressure override a decision that you might make. You learn quickly to not let the internal voice of I need to look cool so I can be welcomed and included overtake your decision making. Like those types of things can really put you in danger in these types of spaces where you your mortal danger is like mortal danger is actually real you know what I mean whereas if we're facing uh, you know not to say that mortal danger isn't present in a abusive verbal situation you know that's a totally different conversation that I'm not equipped to necessarily talk about but I feel like that mortal danger is present there in the sense of the damage it does to people's psyches and which leads us to the healing conversation and what how do we find a spiritual place that does because I'm very curious about that too I'm kind of rambling a little bit for a second but no I was I can from what I'm saying but I I was thinking about what you're saying I believe and I I think I actually write this in in my book so for those interested reckoning the rubble is the is the war correspondent book um you know, I say kind of in the first chapter, my war at home prepared me for the war abroad. Yeah. And because it was war at home. And there is this, I mean, I think, I think a core piece of my message or a core piece of my life's work right now is translating our wars within and translating our wars within so that we can overcome them, so that we can have yeah, victory. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And my war at home yeah. was very much, was very much words break bones. Absolutely. I, I, you know, verbal abuse is real. Psychological course of control is real. Um, it is real. And it breaks us down. You know, I just finished Gabor Mate's book, Myth of Normal. And he really goes into these, these ideas of just our cultural acceptance of raising children 
like things that we don't think are traumatic, things that we don't think are a big deal, um, can actually be very harmful from the way that we talk to our kids to just leaving them to cry. So one of the things he's really, he really advocates against is leaving your child, you know, to cry out their discomfort when they're a toddler or a baby. And he talks about because that has an aspect of abandonment and neglect that the child doesn't mm-hmm. understand but their body experiences. And this is the mm-hmm. somatic experience. The somatic experience is our collection of cellular and molecular structure that we were talking about earlier. Takes all of that stuff in and absorbs it. And it, your body's number one job is to protect you. So it takes those things and goes, oh, okay, this is dangerous and I need to go into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn and I need to block off. And that, and then what happens is your, your body as a child gets stuck with it. And so, you know, and he talked, I heard him in an interview talk about you have a number of soldiers who will go into to war zones or war journalists. And some will come out with extreme forms of PTSD and others won't. Why? It's a lot, and a lot of it has to do with how, as children, we were, how our bodies taught us to survive how our bodies got trained to survive. And so that will affect our response and reactions to other traumatic events later in life. You might experience a certain trauma at 25 that you didn't experience. So that adult wound is important and it needs to be addressed and healed and understood. But your reaction response is going to be based off what you grew up with on how to respond or react. You are not pre- And I want to make sure that I say this to anybody who's experienced a traumatic event. You are not predispositioned to experience that traumatic event. It is not your fault. It wasn't meant to happen. It happened because somebody else made a choice to harm you. And at the end of the day, you were affected by that. And it wasn't your fault. And we have to start from that basis. Beautiful. If we don't, then we can't heal. We just, we live in the aftermath. We live in the aftermath mm-hmm. of other people's choices, our choices, and kind of the will of the earth, right? The physics and biology and the environment, everything that happens. We are living as in, in, in kind of the aftermath of all those things and all the, and, and we as human beings are weaving through other people, through the earth, through society, and we're making choices based off that. It doesn't mean we don't yeah. take responsibility for ourselves. We are, be- we are better able to take responsibility for our bodies when we learn to be aware of it. But until then, your whole body is experiencing something that needs attention and it takes listening to it. It takes listening yeah. to yourself and that, can, that, that harm against you can be physical, can be sexual can be verbal, can be mental, can be financial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coercive control it isn't just about physical violence or sexual mm-hmm. violence. It is those things. But it's usually predicated by cutting you down to make you feel like you're unworthy. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the war zone was a place that I understood and it basically just gave me a much more clear picture of the language I needed to heal what was already in me. Yeah. And say more about that because 
obviously you you mentioned leaving the church and following this dream of yours to be a war correspondent and of course moving through the divorce and all of that and and choosing for yourself to to go forward toward this 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 life choice of yours where was the healing like when what was your where did your spirit or like not where did it begin but like what was your spiritual journey or your healing journey how did that look for you what parts of your journey were your healing such that people listening might go oh maybe that could help me or wow, I had never thought of that. Or yes, I have heard of that. And cool, another person has said it's awesome or whatever, you know, like anything that might be in service to people looking to heal and grow in the same ways. Uh, Absolutely. So I think over the course of my life, I've gone through a a multitude of modalities for healing. Um, Certainly, I've gone through seasons of coaching and talk therapy. And those have been really Mm -hmm. helpful at different times. Um, some people find it helpful to go to therapy for, with the same therapist for 10, 15, 20 years. I honor that if that's what works for me, it's been more in seasons and, Mm -hmm. and that's, and that's okay too. Um, coaches can be really helpful because, you know, and and I think with the therapeutic coaching world kind of opening up, which, you know, I, I end up, I think having a lot of that aspect in, in some of what I do, um, there, there's a place to be able to talk it through to navigate the story, to have someone to help you kind of reframe a little bit and just, just kind of give you that thought you weren't thinking of to help pull back the curtain just a little bit in the space that feels like a blind spot. But I've also done a lot of other things too. Um, some of that has uh, been plant medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a big advocate for plant medicine. I've participated with the cacao, with ayahuasca, with psilocybin. Um, I feel like it's the future. I think it is a radical and beautiful tool. I do not think that it is a cure-all, uh, but I do mm-hmm. think that, and I know you guys have just talked about this and had a whole integration episode, um, <laughs> but it is, it is an amazing tool that can help you create space in your body and uh, in your mind to be able to just tap in a little bit deeper the stories in your subconscious that are playing out because we play out stories every day. We play out value systems every day that we don't even realize that we're doing. Some of them might be helpful for our survival. Some of them might not be helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I do think that plant medicine has a way of being able to open that up. For me, breath work has been a big part of my journey. Uh, I practice a lot of yeah. breath work, meditation. Um, I do think that, that, uh, things like yoga and body movement. I'm not everybody's a yogi. I don't expect everybody to be a yogi, but I do believe sure. in physical movement. So mm-hmm. um, I really love, I am a stand-up paddleboard person. I've done a little bit of surfing, but I tend to kind of lean into the paddleboarding. I love to hike. I love being in the mountains. You know, I know you're a little bit more like winter ski. I'm like, let's go for a huge <laughs> hike and find some waterfalls and jump in. I'm a waterfall chaser. <laughs> Being part of nature is really important to me. Um, being part of the earth uh, is really a part. So, so, you know, but movement, getting your body to move. If, if you're a dancer, to dance, to feel. I've got, a, I've got a client who has experienced a lot of uh, Latin dancing. And one of the things I kept telling her is like, next time you go to your dance class, I want you to think about 
the move you make when you move your leg forward, when you stretch back, when you're dipped. You know, I want you to just have one day where you just think literally about the things that your body's doing because when you do that, when you pay attention to how your body moves, we know exercise makes us feel good. Uh, whether you work out of the gym, and sometimes, you know, I've been working out of the gym in the last couple of weeks. So, you know, whatever you do to get your body to move, to stretch, to lift, to, to exert just a little bit, to challenge yourself, what that does is it not only, you know, uh, increases the endorf- endorphins and hormones and all that kind of stuff, it gets you all excited, right? But it also gives you a chance to see where your body still needs work and where your body needs work is often carrying the trauma, the hurt, the pain, the stress, the strain in your life. And so I'm a big fan of movement. To me, this is a therapeutic modality that is important for people to tap into. Um, These are kind of some, some of the big ones, I think, that have been really important for me. I'm also a writer and a creative. And Mel, my writing is everything. My writing yeah. is my life. My writing is who I am. My writing is my survivorship, my thrivership, my pain, my pleasure. My writing is everything. I can turn myself on when I write a good piece of fucking poetry. <laughs> Amazing. But it's been I healing that, for the, me. That's back to Eros. That's back to yeah. aliveness. That's right. back to you honoring and saying, you know, and, and being in truth around right. that. Right? right. And saying, you know, you just owning that right now is fucking cool. That is leadership. And I have to, I can't do a podcast episode with you without addressing that before I really knew you, I was very attracted in the life force way to your voice and your willingness, your bravery, your boldness to be in the world as your activist self, as this woman, this person who used your words as a beautiful, loving sword. You know, it's sort of this very interesting, but I also looked at you and I go, whoa, damn, I would... I, at the time, like, there's no way I could do that. How the heck fuck does she do that? You know, this real willingness to be in conversations that are very uncomfortable, to be an ally to anti-racism, to be in, an ally to LGBTQ, to be uh, in service of the conversation for white women to heal and all kinds of different systemic oppression that we see and all of the experiences that you've had. I'm very much in those conversations now, not expertly, but it's been a piece of my growth that I thank you for being a leader for me to see someone as a model to be able to, because you know, I'm a writer too, and I'm, I'm finding my own voice, but that's something that I just think is so wonderful about you and certainly you in the public world. Um, but it's just wonderful, this notion of finding your voice. So like if you had any, I don't know, not advice, it's sort of that sort of a cheesy question, but you know, like what no. would you say to someone who's wanting to rise into their voice? You know what I mean? Other than just being in the world like you are modeling for them. Well, honor the fact that it's terrifying. 
<laughs> yeah, right. um, true. Hashtag truth. You know, I, I grew up as a kid, I grew up singing and it's mm-hmm. one of the things that I, I, you know, isn't out always out into the world as much, but it's, it's, you know, a piece of myself that I like. And, you know, I, I sound like my grandmother and, um, and I can hear it. And as I became a writer and as I began to kind of create spaces around poetry and um, understand how I could pull words apart and put them back together and play with them, um, there, there's a space in that that you begin to understand the depth of human emotion and humanity. Um, when it comes to being an ally, it's such a weird word for me. Um, mm. because allyship has become this word that is about people trying to get better at being on the right side of history mm-hmm. and less about how do we fight together as a human consciousness right? for what is just. Um, Oof, I love that. You know, James Baldwin, who's one of my favorite authors, uh, he said that essentially, and I'm summarizing a little bit, but essentially your torment is meaningless in as so far as you cannot relate it to another person. That the purpose of what we go through is to be able to turn it and transform it. He said, you know, you may think that your torment is unprecedented in the history of the world. And again, I'm summarizing, but he said, then you read, then you read, and you begin to see the hurt and the pain and the torture and the, the abject ripping of the human spirit, the human body. And our black brothers and sisters in the United States, they know this well, right? Mm-hmm. But if in my own story of survival, I can understand what it feels like to be torn apart within myself, how Mm. can I not stand with my Black brothers and sisters? How can I not do the bare minimum to stand with them and say, you're right, what you're going through is awful and terrible and wrong and the system is fucking up. And it's part of my human job to march with you, to speak with you, to sit with you. Um, I think there's a lot of conversation in white communities about using our privilege. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I get it. There's, there's this aspect of trying to, you know, use our privilege to help them. But a French, a French activist, a Black French activist said something to me once that stuck with me. And she said, when you use that phrase, though, she goes, I don't want you to use your privilege because then you've just put me in the back seat again. Stand with me. Mm-hmm. Be aligned with me. More than an ally, be aligned. Uh, we're fighting the same system. We're fighting the, we're fighting the fight against an oppressive system that would actually wants to divide us, that wants yeah. to divide us by the social construct of race, by the social construct of gender, the social construct of sexuality. So we're fighting against the same system. And just, just these, to me, these, these, these spaces here, this sort of bare knuckle understanding is enough for me to say, okay, I'm in. And I know I'm hard on white women, <laughs> um, but I, I do think, I do think okay. that we, okay. we have a wound we have to break 
that goes very deep for us. And that is, you know, and I've said it before, the sin of the white woman is the lie that she believes that her oppressor will give her power. But this goes back to a domestic violence analogy for me. I'm passionate about fighting against domestic violence because to me, it explains just about everything. And that Mm. is the fact that when a person who's abused is so tied to their abuser, even if it's psychological or verbal, maybe it's not physical, but they're so tied to the control that that person has over them. So tied to believing that if they don't ride on the coattails of their abuser, that they're not going to be safe or that they're going to be hurt. And I get it. Trust me, I get it. It's not easy to leave those spaces. I get it. It is so hard to leave those spaces. You go through every justification in the book before you leave. I, I don't think it's a good question. Never ask a woman why she doesn't leave because it's, mm-hmm. it is hard. And, 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 and yet, once we are made aware of it, we have to make a choice about what to do with it. And if that choice is to stay in it, we're going to keep perpetuating the tropes that are going to not only be harmful to ourselves, but to others around us. If we choose to leave, it's going to be scary as fuck. It's going to be a risk. It's going to be terrifying. But damn, we're going to find some people that are going to come around us, I swear, I promise. We're going to be surrounded. I would not be where I am if it hadn't been for different seasons of people that surrounded me mm-hmm. and said, mm-hmm. I got you, I got you know? You. Um, and I think that this applies to our social justice movements. I had a friend who said, uh, he, he said he's, he's very big on advocating for LGBTQ youth. And he said, if you are not getting hit by the same stones as those, as those you, whom you claim to ally, you're not mm-hmm. standing close enough. Stand closer. How many people, when we look back at the 1960s video Mm -hmm. footage of MLK marching, how many people were hit, were beat, that were white and black and brown, that were across the board? You know, Fred Hampton called it Rainbow Coalition, right? They, Malcolm X understood this. They all, all of these incredible revolutionaries understood that the Rainbow Coalition was more powerful than the system. The fight, I think, that we're having in in our, our country right now is the oppressive system is losing. And just like the Wicked Witch of the West when she's melting, all she can do is complain that she's melting. Instead of actually (laughs) making change or taking accountability for all the horrible things that she did, (laughs) she's melting, okay? And so I think that's what's happening. But the problem is, is that the oppressive system is gonna fight harder when they know they're losing. So if we can get to a space where we can unite a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, we have a chance. We have to have a chance to overcome that system. I love that as a directive, as, as an aid to people who are like, what do I do? How do I do it? Even conceptually, that is so helpful, I think, for people who are wanting to be in service to positive systemic societal change in the ways that they're called. I love that. Well, my sister, we are coming up on the close of our beautiful time together. And before we do, I want to roll through a series of just sort of more rapid fire questions just for fun. Just because you know what, we always go deep. Fuck yeah, we do. 
And then <laughs> I'm like, let's just have a little fun at the end of this thing and, and see what we get. But you've already just given so much. And oh my God, I'm just, my brain is reeling as always. I know it's a lot. So, and I know it's a lot. And it is, it, to me, it's, it's all good. related to the erotic experience, right? I mean, Look, I understand that the desire to own our sensuality. I, I am a, you know, a bi woman and a non-monogamous woman. And so I understand that there's this aspect of relationship that, that is important when it comes to that. But I also have just expanded. For me, eroticism has to expand into all parts of my life. It has to expand to my activism, to my work life, to my history, to my story, to my sense of being. And yes. that also means acknowledging pain, acknowledging mm -hmm. fear, um, not yeah. staying in it, but acknowledging it. And, you know, it, if we could just hone in on the fullness of experience, stop pursuing happiness, start pers pursuing a full experience, and we will have yes. joy. Yes. And Glennon joy. talks about this a lot. Glennon, Glennon Doyle talks about this a lot that it, we are not as humans, we're not supposed to be happy. We're supposed to feel everything. Yeah. And it's, it's so, yeah. so true. Yeah. And, and that takes away, it starts to strip away the judgment mm. on the quote unquote negative emotions, fear, pain, those things that we're in, where we normally would be like, why am I not happy? Why am I still feeling this way? What is wrong with me? It, help, it helps to take those stories and, and silence those stories and heal those stories to the point where it's like, no, this is my full human experience and I'm grateful. What can I right. learn here? How can I right. grow and how can I move forward? I love that. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's Let's do these quick rapid fire questions, which they don't have to be super quick, but you know, I As you like, like to, I like to do these because it's sort of, you know, this no, like notion of being in alignment with our core mission of, of honesty, vulnerability, just joy, love, learning, growing, all the things that we talk about, of course, hilarity. Duh. <laughs> Can't live without. <laughs> I mean, seriously. We should just like take some screenshots of our text chain and post it in the Trust the Journey family. There are times, Mel, <laughs> like our text chain makes me so happy sometimes. <laughs> I'm telling you, hilarity is definitely healing. Comedy it's, is it so, is. so, so important. It's, it's another so modality. Important. Go to a comedy show. <laughs> yes, it is. Fuck yes, it is. No shit. So, okay, let's do this. So, well, I'm going to start with the funny one because okay. that is what we were just talking about. And right. it's sort of actually a hard question to answer. And maybe we just answered it. But like, mm -hmm. what was the last thing or what's something that really made you belly laugh in recent times? Oh, other, I mean, I guess our text chain, but it can be something yeah. else. <laughs> I mean, our text, our text chains really do make me laugh on a regular basis. I, I cannot say enough about being in communication with a friend who yes. you can be absolutely absurd with. And I have a couple of friends like this where it's just back and forth, back and forth. And then the amount of laughing emojis that just follow in this space. <laughs> um, right. I think this, I feel like this is sort of a regular practice. Um, but I will, I will share a, a quick story that I, I really, I just, yeah. I just love this story. It just warms my heart. So, you know, it, it was a while ago. Um, I feel like it's been over a year ago, but it was just, it was just a moment that I remember so well, that my body remembers so well. Uh, I, I was, you know, having dinner with a friend 
and uh, I had actually made them dinner and, uh, and their kids at some point had come and said, you know, come play with us, come play with us out in the backyard, come play with us out in the backyard. And, um, and so she and I, we went with the, the two kids and we went into the backyard and we started chasing the kids, chasing the kids around the yard. And at one point, the younger one, he thinks he's sly. I'm reaching for him to like, you know, like tagging to pull him in. And I'm on this ledge that it was, I think it was supposed to separate maybe a garden that didn't exist, but it's, it's kind of this little like <laughs> footstep. And so I know that I'm about ready to topple over. And he tries to time out as I'm pulling him in. I'm like, no cheating. And so I, I, I fall, I stumble and I sort of roll over so that he would kind of land on me. So I, I wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't get squished. And the two of us just started laughing. Like oh. we couldn't stop for five minutes. He was so oh. sweet and just the sweetest kid, but we just couldn't stop laughing. Isn't and it just felt so, like a moment of joy. Oh, oh. It's so good. It's so and good. I feel like every, everybody knows those moments. It's not like we can, it's not like we're trying to elicit that moment, right. but it's more like, oh, bringing intention and, and, uh, awareness to those, those moments. It's fascinating because it's some of my favorite bits of life, which is why I personally lean into comedy, why comedy is a pillar of my brand, you know, and a pillar of my life experience is because it's so good. I need to be around people who help make me laugh. I mean, I love to laugh. I love to laugh. Whether I watch a lot of comedy, I watch a lot of stand-up, I love comedy film, but it's because my life is so sort of yang and intense. I mean, in the past few nights, I've been with a friend and and we've had a couple of night sessions where like after the, you know, her kid goes to bed, like she and I will just stand in the kitchen and talk while I'm cutting up an apple or something. And we could just riff on, you know, on on life, on each other, on, on, you know, whatever the situation is, whatever the topic is. And it just turns into this sort of comedic moment of pure connection and intimacy. Like comedy is intimacy Definitely. Definitely. Oh, and I'm so it's, it's, it can get serious when you're doing deep work, when you're doing big work in the world, when you care about what you're doing, when you care about your people, when you want to heal and you don't want to avoid your darkness, that can get really heavy. And so it's a really, I think, very critical component to healing is allowing the lighter side of life and knowing that that isn't you avoiding your healing, it's you being in service to it. It's play. You know, Esther talks about play all the time. And for me, play is essential. I I actually look back at my family history and I look at the struggle that I went through. If there was one thing I could say they gave me that I have held on to, it's play. Those were two people Mm. who did know how to play because when we were playing, we weren't fighting, right? So it was obsessive. So play is safety to me, but play is also intimacy. It's healing. Uh, To me, going out in nature is about play. Moving my body is about play. All of that is about being, and honestly, you know, if the sexual partner, if the two, if the two of you can laugh at the end, mm-hmm. I'm saying that's a good session. Absolutely, that's good sex right there. Girl. Because to me, <laughs> totally. If, if sex cannot include laughter and awkwardness and fun and a little bit of teasing, like what are we doing? It's supposed exactly to be right. beautiful and fun. And so I think comedy has to permeate everything we do or everything we do really is just going to be so intense and heavy and frustrating all the time. It's so true. So true. All right. So next question. In the 
honest and vulnerable sort of value. What is something that's humbled you recently? So a little over a month ago, uh, I was supposed to get on an airplane. And I'm in Asia now, but at the time I was supposed to leave before the first of the year. And I was going to start my year here. And I had paid for the ticket. I was ready to go and I showed up at the airport. And uh, they denied my boarding and didn't seem to have an answer for it. And it was very confusing. And they initially <sighs> said they had the payment, the, the payment uh, app that I had used, which wasn't my bank. It was just a payment app that I had used had said they mm -hmm. had made the payment. And for the past several weeks, I went through this entire space. I eventually like, you know, waited a couple of weeks, took some of my earnings and bought a new ticket, still hadn't gotten back what they owed me. I'm still fighting for that. But the Goodness. entire experience has humbled me because it's really made me kind of come into connection with uh what do I have control over and what do I not? Yeah. Yep. I'm a person who gets stuff done. Mm -hmm. I've had a life of very decisive movement. Um, I am a person who passionately works hard, you know, and manages, whether it's my finances or my time, I manage it really well, or at least I think I do. Yep. But I also have a tendency to so desperately want to control the narratives. And that's human. Yeah, sure. But it was about looking at the angle for myself that that was a problem because I yeah. couldn't control this. I couldn't control them. I haven't been. There are some things I can do. I can make complaints. I can file paperwork. Mm -hmm. I can make calls. I can check in every day. These are some things I can control and I can push them but I cannot force the outcome that I want because they have control of the outcome and I don't have control over that. And yeah. I have had to release a little bit of that in myself to say, I'm going to keep trying for now because I do think that there's a space for me to do that. But, I, but the anxiety that I would go through, the anxiousness, the heaviness, I have to release some of that because it's not fully in my control and I have to understand that they're making choices. Even if it's not a good choice, they're making choices. And I have to create space for myself to keep going, to work every day, to make room for clients, to make room for writing, mm -hmm. to make room for everything else that I'm doing. In order for me to make room for that, I have to release this aspect of it. And I've had to confront that myself. And that's been really fucking humbling for me Yeah. to constantly ask Ugh. myself every single day, what can I not control? What can I control? And with what I can control, what do I need to do? Yes. Amen, sister. That's been hugely humbling lately. You know, and I thank you for sharing that because I, I love this question, even though it's a hard one. And obviously people who step into this space understand that we go to these places. And so I know everyone who steps into this space is willing and, and, and wanting to share deeply in these ways. And still, it's it's a brave and and beautiful 
again, piece of leadership in a way to, to be willing to share what humbles us because that's real vulnerability to be like, oh man, you know, so thank you for that. The next couple are easier, I hope. At least they're on the higher level of the energetic <laughs> spectrum. So we'll see. <laughs> but um, just something simple joy, love, like what is something that you are just loving right now or something that brings you simple joy? Um, I'm really actually enjoying uh, spending ta- some s- time with some soul fam right now. Um, you know, I am spending a lot of time with a friend, uh, who I've known for almost 20 years and, you know, we don't get to see each other as often as we like, but we really do strive and make an effort. And, um, I FaceTime her on a pretty regular basis, even when we're apart and she FaceTimes me and we do talk on the phone. We found our rhythm with, with what works for us. Um, but being able to just be in spaces with her and have those conversations. And, and we, we've grown alongside each other. The thing I love the most is how we're able to so easily identify, like, not only ourselves, but each other. Like, we could call each other out and be like, you're projecting. No, you're projecting. Well, <laughs> wait a minute now. Okay, now I know this is my own wounding, but, you know, this is what I'm, you know, and we're able to just sort of so lucidly go through these conversations in a way that just feels so healthy and beautiful that it it expands our joy together, but also like helps us have those deeper conversations of sort of learning and being inspired by each other. Um, you know, and just being just, just, conscious you know we we both had a we both had a moment in the past few weeks where you know there was something where I wasn't necessarily being as mindful about it and there was something where she wasn't being as mindful about it but we brought it up to each other and you know the response is oh you know what I gotta do better about that okay yeah Mm -hmm. I I hear you I hear you okay we're good we're good you know it's it's there's just it's it's whether we're we're laughing or we're sharing something serious or we're sharing a common bond or expressing a difference um you know i tend to be more introverted she tends to be more extroverted so we you know we there's 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 this play in our our sisterhood um there's something delightful yeah yeah there's something delightful when it's going to sound maybe funny. I feel like it's kind of funny. Is there's something delightful about sharing a human moment and with someone who is equally skilled to navigate challenge? Where because you move through the challenge relatively quickly and with with ease, and then there's this sort of almost delightfulness about like check us out. We fucked right. up and we just, you know, look at, go And team, we did it better. Know? Like the <laughs> actions know? follow yeah. the words. You're like, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. And then, you, you know, it, so it's, it's just creating such a mindfulness with each other. And I think what I've been so grateful for is because I've known her for so long, um, like we just, we just step in rhythm. And, yeah. you know, I can't, you know, I remember when we first met and, and I was going through a significant, I was actually going through my divorce and she had no idea how bad things were. And I didn't say, any of it. And then, you know, and so it wasn't until years later when all of that stuff came out and she's like, I didn't know. I was like, yeah, but you were in your own struggle at that time. We couldn't see each other, you know, in terms of our, our sort of energetic space, but look at how much we've grown 
in all this time that we can just pick each other's, you know, life and find joy and find pleasure and find, you know, conversation. Um, you know, and, and she's one of the closest people to my heart in the world. Um, life without her does not exist. You know, whether Mm. I'm, whether I'm in person with her or whether we're, you know, traveling the world. Yeah. So, well, that's and on enjoy. the vein, yeah, on the lane of in the vein of learning and growing, what's something that you've learned recently or something that you want to learn? I think that I'm I'm and this is this I know this might feel more generic, but I just feel like it's it's an ever continuing learning process for me in terms of what does it look like to repair? Mm, and that is yeah. in relationships that is our bodies. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of my teachers, she says, we've got to get good at repair. Um, yes, and true. Rupture and repair. Rupture and repair. And we as a society aren't great at that. And I feel like it's a constant learning process for me. One, because of the home I grew up in, where repair was not possible in the way that we would normally think of it to be. We also have a tendency, mm-hmm. I think, to see healing as a return to the previous state, which is not how I define it. Yeah, I think my healing either. is about our ability to weave ourselves into a sense of wholeness that we can move forward. But that wholeness is not going to look like its previous state, right? When you, when you break a bone, or when you have a gash or a cut, that scar heals on your, on your body, but it's not returned to the previous state of, of you know, existence. So as the body, so the soul. And I think that um, there's been, and, and I know you know this about me, but there's been, you know, in the past year or so, there's, there's been some circumstances that have really confronted me with how can I get better at repair, but how can I also claim what I need in the repair work, whether it's with a person mm-hmm. or a circumstance? Yeah, beautiful. And I do think that, you know, I know that feels a little bit more general, but it is a vulnerable no, space for me. It's a skill. It's a skill. I mean, it's also a concept that is worthy of, of putting forth. You know what I mean? So if someone listening is going, oh, well, what is this? I'd like to learn more about this concept of repair in relationship and life and healing as part, because certainly people listening are on a healing path. I don't think you make it to episode whatever number this is. And you know, you know what I mean? If you're not like, oh, cool, I'm into the healing thing. You know what I mean? Right. So I appreciate that share. All right, my friend, final question. If you could initiate some kind of positive change in the world, like what would be your vision and why? Like, it doesn't have to be like life altering, the be all end all. It could, that saves humanity. It could be something small or it could be something larger, but what, what would you say to that? Like, what would you do to change the, po- the world in a positive way? Understand the story. Value the story. Value the storyteller. Um, you know, I, I get into these conversations sometimes with uh, people who you know, have a connection to their religion, which, again, I'm, you know, I'm not anti-religion. I'm a very deeply spiritual person. And I also think that what happens the misnomer that happens is that people understand that the stories we know from the mystics and the poets are these stories about experiencing the world from their view. And for a, 
for most of history, we've been asking the same questions, having the same thoughts, having the same struggles, and telling the same stories. What it means is that we're not alone in the world. Mm-hmm. And if we can understand the basis of the story, it doesn't mean you have to be a great writer or you have to be a director to a movie. It's just simply understanding that the story you tell has a purpose and has a reason and has a backstory to its backstory. And it brings you to where you are. People see storytelling sometimes, I think, as sort of this fiction thing that happens or the thing on the news. But actually, the story is the thing that in your existence every single day, how you show up to work. Are you in a bad mood? Are you in a good mood? Are you looking forward to seeing your coworkers? Are you ready to change your career? How about your sex life? That's a story too. Um, How do you orient yourself? Uh, What do you need? What gives you pleasure? What's painful? And if it's painful, what's that story? Because that story might come from abuse or harm or trauma. Um, Can you tell your partner what you need? Um, That's a story. Because then you can create what I like to call pure conversation. To me, the sexual experience is pure conversation. But it requires actual conversation. The story that you want to tell in order to be able to go into it with full awareness. when you self pleasure, whether your self pleasure is a is sensual and sexual and in your own time, or whether your self pleasure is being out in nature and getting dirty and being in the 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 water, you know, for me, bliss is that moment when I jump off my board and that few seconds that I sink into the salt water and it surrounds me and it holds me. That's a story. And that's an experience, and that's the fullness of me. But I say that and I share that because that why do I describe why do I describe the water as something that's holding me? Because I'm a person that maybe wasn't held as a kid that I needed to be held. And so when Mm -hmm. I find maybe in nature or a hug from a friend or whatever, it's that space of being held that's a story. And so Mm -hmm. It's me being able to transform the story from one of pain to one of pleasure. So I would say that if there was anything that I would like people, anybody, one person, a thousand people, a million people, if we can hone in our ability to understand the story and value the story and use that language even, we could change the world. We could bring justice. We can bring healing. Racism is a story. Remember, racism, race is the construct. So it was a story told by oppression to Mm -hmm. create division, to create enslavement, to create harm, torture, Uh, sexism, Mm -hmm. same thing, construct, Uh, gender binaries uh, Mm -hmm. have been created as a social construct to harm. Mm -hmm. So how can we transform them into stories of radical pleasure, of Stories of overcoming, stories of healing, stories of justice, yes. stories of of emergence. Yes, from what was painful. Well, my sister, on that note, how can people find you? If people want to work with you, how do they get in touch? What is your info? Let's hear it. Okay, 
So um, <laughs> if you want to see like short, see my work, how I kind of my day to day, I always tell people, go to my Instagram at birth revolution and it's B-E-A-R-T-H revolution. And uh, you can also then go to birthrevolution.com, which is where you can find my coaching page, my teaching pages. If you want to get in contact with me, feel free to send me a DM or an email, ashgallagher83 at Gmail is my email. You can actually just go into those spaces, send me a DM if you want to work with me, if you want to share your story, if you want to, you know, figure out what options are best going to work. I welcome it. Um, yeah. Yes, There's that. I love it. Well, I encourage you, peeps listening, if you're resonating with Ash's style, reach out to her, connect with her, follow her stuff on all the channels that she just said. Of course, as always, thank you for being with us here. Follow Trust the Journey at trustthejourney.today. Jay and I personally, jasonmaledski.com melaniecurtis.com all of the things <laughs> all of the website birthrevolution.com ash thank you so much for being here for, for having being me. so generous so generous in your sharing in your expertise bringing it but bringing your truth and your just again that beautiful life energy that you are so generous with it's, it's it is in my belief high high service and so Thank you for that. And thank you, everyone who is here listening. If you really, honestly, if you were inspired by anything you, that you heard, go ahead and share it with a friend, share it wherever you feel inspired to share it. And just thank you so much for being here. Love you all so much. <laughs>